Well, this morning we are continuing in our year-long study in the book of Romans. This is a letter that was inspired by the Holy Spirit and written by the Apostle Paul, sent to the early church in Rome, the capital, the seat of the Roman Empire, back when it was actually an empire. And so when Paul was writing to these early believers, inspired by the Spirit, he was ensuring, he was making sure to tell them that what they had in their hands, what they had grasped, what they believed in, this good news of Jesus Christ, he wanted to make sure that they knew exactly why that good news is in fact the best news they'll ever hear that they could ever share with the world around them. They were in a position to take this message to the corners of the earth right? because they were in the seat of power. They had so much potential. And in the same way, we are in a place right here in Bryan College Station to bring the gospel, not just to our neighbors, not just to our community, but to the entire world. We're, we're a city that is constantly sending people around all over the, the nation and the world around us. We, we have technology that allows us to interact with people across the globe. And so just like those early Roman believers, we have the same opportunity and we have the same command, the same commission from Jesus Christ to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, to teach them what we've been taught, to show them what we've seen, and to share with them why the gospel is in fact such incredible news. That's why we see in the book of Romans this theme over and over and over again. And it's what we see in Romans chapter eight. This morning, we're gonna be in Romans eight, starting in verse 12. If you wanna turn there in your Bible or go there on your phone, we'll also have the verses on the screen. But Romans 8, 12 really needs to be understood uh, following really all of Romans, but especially Romans 8, 1 through 11. So if you were with us a few weeks ago, you might remember that Paul talked about how the Holy Spirit is given to every believer as a source of comfort and encouragement, but especially a source of power over sin that previously held us captive. That as unbelievers, as unregenerate people, we are born into sin and death. We are born as rebels against the God who made us and loves us. And so as those people in, in open rebellion, in that unregenerate state, before we accept the gift of grace through Jesus Christ, we have no choice but to sin. We have no choice but to anger the Lord and to rebel against him. Hostility is our only mode of operation. Hostility between ourselves and our God. That's what Paul calls as being in the flesh. But through grace, or by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, Paul explains in Romans, the beginning of Romans 8, that we are now no longer in the flesh, but we are in Christ. And we have been given the Holy Spirit of God. And just as the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, this third person of the Trinity, just as the Spirit of God had the power to raise Christ from the dead, so too God the Father uses the Spirit to, to bring life and resurrection to our bodies even here and now. That even though physically we are still under the curse, even though physically our bodies are gonna decay and die, the Lord through the spirit can use us and, and move through us to bring about life and joy and peace, right? Those fruit, that fruit of the spirit. And suddenly we have an opportunity, not just to choose rebellion and hostility over and over and over again, but we have a choice to choose life, to walk according to the spirit 
Now, we can still choose to walk according to the flesh. Sometimes we still return to those old broken ways. But grace abounds. And the Lord is faithful and just to forgive. So even though we might slip, even though we stumble, we still have the securing power of the Spirit that enables us to live a life that's glorifying to the Lord. That's what Paul establishes in the beginning of 8. And what he's going to do in verse 12 is he's going to shift and talk about how even though we've been set free, even though we have freedom from slavery, the truth is that we don't have freedom from suffering. That even as followers of Christ, our lives are difficult. Sin is still here. We still have temptation. We still have suffering and difficulty in just every sphere of life. We know this to be true, right? We have relationships that are hard or responsibilities that are hard. We've experienced difficulty or, or loss or pain or suffering in our lives. And what happens is when that hardship hits, what we need to get through it is, is hope. Right? At the end of the day, that's, that's what gets us through moments of difficulty and hardship is because we have a hope that things will resolve or we have a hope that someone will carry us through. We have a hope in some end result that this hardship, this suffering will at some point cease. Right? That's a hope that we need. And when that hope is lost, which happens, when that hope is lost, then despair and dismay, it just runs rampant, right? We've maybe had seasons of life where that's taken place. We see it in the lives of even children uh, like these right here. When hope is lost, children cry. <laughs> that's, that's the takeaway. Every single one of us, we know that, man, if we lose hope, man, hardship, it, it hits even harder, right? If we don't have hope, if we don't know what's around the corner, if we don't have a destination in mind or in sight, then goodness, that hardship, it, it has a way of destroying us. We are weeping and wailing, and we're going to need a bunch of melatonin to go to sleep that night, right? That's, that's what happens, and whether it's disappointment that a hand puppet turns into a monster in a suit, or whether that means that a relationship we have is, is falling apart, or maybe a, a something with school or work is not going according to plan, if that means a, a health difficulty, a, a breakdown in our body or in our mind, man, there is so much hardship that shouldn't be surprising. Jesus told his followers that they should expect difficulty. They should expect suffering, that just as he was despised and rejected by the world, so too would those who follow him. So hardship is guaranteed. The question is, how do we endure it? How do we persevere? And what Paul's going to lay out in Romans 8, 12 through 25, is that the way that God has given us through that suffering is, is an opportunity to hold fast to an eternal hope. It's a hope in our identity. It's a hope in our inheritance. And it's a hope that brings about joyful, eager endurance. Right? This is how Paul kind of moves in these 12 verses. He talks about how we have a new identity, that God has transformed us, has shifted us from being slaves to death and sin into sons and daughters of the Lord Most High. 
He's going to talk about how we have this present suffering that will give way to eternal glory. He's going to talk about how we have this internal groaning that will eventually be replaced by an eternal redemption. Right? So we have a hope in a present identity. We have a hope in a future inheritance. And we have a hope that brings about perfect, joyful, eager endurance. This is where he goes, starting in verse 12. He says, so then, brothers and sisters, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul is essentially transitioning. He's summarizing verses 1 through 11. He says, remember, you are no longer in the flesh, but you might be choosing to live according to the flesh. But he's reminding me, he says, but you're not under obligation to do that. And in fact, as he said in 1 through 11, he says that the way of the flesh, the outlook of the flesh is death. It's hostility between you and God. And so he's reminding him of that. He says, hey, if you continue to live according to the flesh, it brings death and destruction, dismay and despair. He says, but you now, by the Spirit, according to the Spirit, you can put those things to death and you can live. He's just summarizing 1 through 11 that we now have the opportunity to live in a new way, to follow a new path, to live not according to the flesh, but to live according to the Spirit. Why? Because all who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. Right? He says just the fact that you have the Spirit of God with you that's leading and guiding and directing says that is he serves as a mark, as a guarantee of your new identity. And when he says sons of God here, he's not just speaking to the boys, right? He's not like, hey, boy spirit. Like that's not what he's getting at. He's saying sons of God. The term he's using here has carries with it basically legal implications. He's saying you are sons of God, meaning you are people, children, who inherit the fullness of God's promises, the fullness of what he has guaranteed. So it's not just, he's not making a gender statement, he's making a legal statement, saying that those of you that are led by the Spirit are in fact sons of God. And he's not saying here that that there's some sort of condition on being a child of God. Sometimes this verse is taken out of context and it, it instills fear or anxiety in the life of a Christian who think like, well, I don't know, am I, am I more led by the Spirit today or was I following my flesh? And if I was following my flesh, I guess I'm not really a son of God. I'm not really a child of God. Sometimes it's used or weaponized in that way. And I think, I hope it's clear, even just in the immediate context, that that is not what Paul is trying to say. He's addressing, remember, brothers and sisters. He says, hey, f- family, right? Fellow men and women, brothers and sisters in Christ, He says, we have all been, we've received the Spirit. We are in the Spirit. We are all being led by the Spirit. Now, we might not choose to follow the leading of the Spirit, right? That's what he talks about in the first 11 verses. But the leading is still taking place. The Spirit is still at work. He says, and the work of the Spirit ensures that we are, in fact, sons of God. He says, you didn't receive a spirit of slavery, leading again to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
It says, you need to remember that this spirit that's given to you is, is not, a fe- uh, not a spirit that's going to lead you down those previous paths. That those, the, the way of the flesh, he says, that's what leads to fear. That's what leads to hostility. That's what leads to death. He says, anytime you feel drawn in that direction, he says, that's not the spirit of God. You've been given a spirit of slavery and fear. But instead, you've been given a spirit of confidence. Why? Because it's the spirit of adoption. Again, he's using a very intentional Greek term to speak about a legal adoption that's not just, hey, you can be in my family and we'll see you at Thanksgiving. But this term that he's using is very intentional because it holds within it the implication of full inheritance for the, the one being adopted. Right, because in Roman times, sometimes you would pass on your business or like your, your grain empire to someone who wasn't your biological child. And generally speaking, when you did that, you would adopt the person that's taking over. And they would become this legal heir to your you know, fortune or your wealth or your, your business. Paul's using that term to describe what the Spirit does for us. It says the Spirit has adopted you into the family of God as full heirs with all the full rights and privileges that come through that adoption. And it's because of this Spirit, it's by Him that we cry out, Abba, Father, that we are now children of the Lord. That's why Jesus tells His followers, you can pray to God and trust that He is your Father. God the Father says, you will be my children and I will be your Father. He, he wants us to use this family mindset, to have this family mindset, to use these family terms. Why? Because family is forever. It's something that we recognize. It's something that's just naturally baked into our life. We know that family is forever. That I can't do anything to eliminate my bond between myself and my father. Now, I could strain that relationship. I could challenge that relationship. I could ignore that relationship. But I can't break it. Like nothing that's, that's outside of my power. And so Paul is saying that it's through the Spirit that we have this assurance. It's through the Spirit that we have this adoption into being coming children, sons and daughters of the Lord Most High. And this present identity, what it does is it gives us a future hope, right? Because of this identity as a child of God, it brings with it a future hope. Right? And this is something that, that we maybe don't think about a lot, but it's something that actually takes place with many identities in our lives. I, I remember when I was starting at Texas A&M University, coming into the Mays Business School back in 2006, I was starting as someone who was, I was a townie. I grew up in College Station, so I already kind of knew a lot of Aggie stuff, but I had never really gone full in, right? Like I didn't even, I wasn't planning on going to A&M, but then I did. And so as I was going, I knew that as an incoming freshman, I needed to attend fish camp. Now, fish camp, if you're unfamiliar, is the first kind of entry point into the the Kool-Aid drinking cult of Texas A&M life, right? And so when you go to fish camp, what they do is they gather a bunch of 18-year-olds and they put them under the supervision of a bunch of 19-year-olds. And they say, let's see what happens, right? And they throw you into this camp in the middle of nowhere. And they just, they, every day, for three or four days, they're like, A&M, A&M, A&M. Until you eventually leave that place. And you're like, A&M, 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 
and you learn, you know, yells, and you learn, uh, like, traditions, and you talk with the yell leaders, and you hear these amazing stories, and you all open a Coke can at the same time, and you're like, whoa, it's so loud. That's what I did. But we, you throw a rock in a pond, and you're like, goodbye, high school Jacob. Like, like you, you go through these experiences that are designed to essentially establish you as, a, as an Aggie. And one of the ways they do that is there's this very important part, this thing that they do throughout the entire camp, whereas they introduce themselves, and what they're telling you is, hey, as you introduce yourself to new people at, in college, they say, you've got to give them a few, right, just standard information. Like, I'm Jacob. I'm from, you know, East, East Highway 6, Texas. <laughs> I'm from, it's an hour and a half from Lubbock. And I, uh, I'm, a, I'm a, a business major. At the time, I was an accounting major. So I'd say, I'm, I'm, I'm an accounting major. But most importantly, you always close with the same line. Most importantly, I'm the proudest member of the fighting Texas Aggie class of 2010. And then now I whoop, right? Thank you. But at the time, they go, hey, right? And they're like, oh, freshman. But what is that, right? Besides creepy, what is that? <laughs> it is a way of shaping your present identity, but grounding it in a future hope, right? Because if I'm saying that the most important thing about me is that I'm the, I'm the proudest member of the Fighting Texas Aggie class of 2010. What that signifies is that, hey, when 2010 rolls around, you're not going to be seeing me on campus no more. Hopefully, right? <laughs> That's what I'm communicating. So not only is it who I am now, but it's saying, hey, this is where I'm headed. And in the same way, what, G, what Paul is telling us in Romans 8 is we have been given this present identity as sons and daughters of the Lord Most High. We are children of God. We just sang that. We are children of God. And with that present identity, it brings this incredible future hope and promise. But the problem is that so often we are tempted to accept, to believe, to, to internalize insufficient and incorrect identities. So often we are willing to just carry with us lies, lies that are spoken over us. Maybe as kids, I remember as a young parent being told and really sinking in, I was told that, hey, you got to be so careful, so wise as a parent, because the, the you are's that you speak over your children when they're young, the you are's of childhood become for them the I am's of adulthood. And some of us, we had great, great background, great parents or grandparents or coaches or mentors, and they spoke truth over us and they encouraged and loved us, but some of us didn't. And maybe some of us had so much great encouragement and affirmation and truth tellers in our lives, but some other lies, that man, they always sneak in. And I can't tell you how many people I've worked with over the years in ministry who just have that one little voice in their mind, that little lie, that, that cut that came after school in fifth grade, that they just, oh, it's just, they just carry it for a lifetime. Or maybe some of us, it's not necessarily uh, another identity. It's not necessarily something that we accepted as a child, or maybe it's something even now that we determine, we say, no, this is who I'm going to be, right? I'm, I'm a fan of this team, or I'm a, I'm a worker in this organization. I'm this kind of student. I'm this kind of boyfriend. I'm this kind of parent. I'm this kind of child. 
and we put our identity into certain roles, relationships, and responsibilities that simply don't last. And all of a sudden, when that relationship falls apart or when those kids grow up and they leave your house or when you no longer have that job or when you no longer are in that town, all of a sudden we have an identity crisis. Why? Because we were putting our identity in something that was insufficient or incorrect. And what we're told in Scripture is that our identity is so much more than husband of this person or or father of those kids. It's so much more than worker for that boss or co-worker of those people, the student of this, majoring in that. There is so much more to my identity. There's such a greater identity for me than being the proudest member of the Fighting Texas Aggie class of 2010. If I could stand, if I stood in front of you and I told you that's the most important thing, that most importantly, I, Jacob, most importantly, I'm the proudest member, you should be really worried about me. Like, that's not a good thing. Instead, what we're told in Scripture, that the most important thing about you, most importantly, you belong to the Lord. That you've been adopted, not by your ability, not because you earned it, not because you deserved it, but you've been adopted into the family of God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so we have to remember who we are and whose we are, who we belong to. That's what determines our identity. And sure, there are other roles and responsibilities that God entrusts to our care. I do need to pay attention to my role and relationships. I need to be a great husband. I need to be a great father. I should be a good coworker. I should function as a good pastor. I need to pursue excellence in that. But those things can never define me over the incredible fact, over the incredible gift that I have been made a child of God. That is it. And so we have to say this to ourselves. We have to speak this truth. We need other people to speak this truth into our lives, that we are adopted children of the Lord Most High. One of my favorite passages that speaks to this, maybe a passage that we need to read or we need to memorize, is that to all who receive Jesus Christ, to those who believe in his name, he, Jesus, has given us the right to become God's children. And that is incredible. That is incredible. Being known as a child of God, it's not just words in a song. It's not just a platitude or something to write in a card to give to someone on their like going away from impact party or whatever. A child, being a child of God, that's unbelievable. And it's a gift from the Lord. And that's the identity that we have, that we wrap ourselves up in. Paul says that's where our hope comes from, this present identity of becoming sons and daughters of God. He says, but even more than that, as we accept and appreciate this incredible identity, he says, we can also look forward to this unbelievable eternal inheritance. This is where he goes, starting in verse 16. He says that the Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are God's children. Right? That's what's also so incredible, is that not only do we have these words written on a page, this objective, you know, 
telling, this, this objective writing of like, okay, you belong to the Lord. But he says that what we need and what we receive from the Lord through his Holy Spirit is this existential internal reminder and, and, and encouragement and affirmation that we do, in fact, belong to God. And he says, and if we are children, then also we are heirs, namely heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so we may also be glorified with him. Again, Paul's not setting up a conditional statement that says you got to suffer a certain amount to be glorified. That's not what he's saying. What he's presenting here are these just unavoidable truths about God's children. He says, as children, you are also heirs. Right? Again, he's calling back to that adoption term and all that that we already talked about. As children, you are also heirs. In the same way, he's saying, and as those who suffer, because it's guaranteed, it's not an if, it's not a maybe, it's a when and how, how will we suffer? He says, as those who suffer, we will be glorified. And so as people who follow after Jesus Christ, we will experience suffering. And as those who suffer with him, we look forward to this future glorification that Paul describes then in the very next verse. He says that I consider, verse 18, that our present sufferings cannot even be compared to the coming glory that will be revealed to us. Literally the term, the Greek term here when it says compared, it's, it's worthiness, it's this weight, this gravity. He says it doesn't even line up at all to the glory that's waiting for us. So this present sufferings, you can't even compare it. It's not even worthy to be in the same room as the glory that will be revealed. For the creation, all of creation itself, it eagerly waits for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of God who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. Okay, what did Paul just say? He is telling us that all of creation is essentially in this together. Right? That's what he's saying. He says, as we await this future inheritance, he says, all of creation with us is waiting with bated breath. Because all of creation is suffering, is in bondage to decay. Not because the raccoon down the street's like, I want my life to be terrible. Because that's how raccoons talk. I don't know if you knew that. They're all Southern, even in Canada. It's not that the raccoon says, oh, I just want to suffer. I can't wait to decay. Like, the creation never chose this. Paul's bringing us back to this tragedy of our creation account, that Adam and Eve were put in the Garden of Eden in perfection. And God gave them a role. He gave them responsibility. He gave them work. He says, I want you to care for all of creation. I want you to cultivate what I've already created. I want you to create more people, right? I want you to, to, to be fruitful and to multiply, to bring more of my image bearers into this world, right? Humanity was the pinnacle of God's creation. We were his, his pride and joy. And yet, those who were brought into the garden to be caretakers, what did they bring? Curse. Because of their sin, because of humanity's sin, all of creation is cursed and broken. God said, now the ground is going to be hard. Now children are going to be tough. 
all of creation is going to suffer because of your sin. And just as we were the forerunners that brought sin and brought destruction and decay into this world, so too are we the forerunners or the first fruits of God's eternal plan of redemption, right? It wasn't subjected to decay in despair where God's like, gosh, I don't know how this is going to turn out. It was subjected in hope because God had a plan. He says, one of these days, I'm going to send the one who's necessary to crush the head of the serpent, to crush your enemy, and to bring about redemption, to restore what was broken. And as we wait for that day, as all of creation waits for that day, what God has told us is that people come first. So he says, all of creation is just waiting for the freedom of God's children, that on some level, all of the world is looking at humanity and saying, gosh, can't wait for them to get, get things right. Because as soon as God restores his people, that's when he renews all of creation. It's what we studied a year ago in the book of Revelation. That first things first, God brings restoration, reconciliation, and restoration for his people. And it is after we are redeemed and reconciled and restored that then he brings about a new earth. Paul says we are all looking forward to that day when the inheritance is given to us in full. We're awaiting that incredible freedom. We have hope in the fact that God has promised this future glory. It's the hope that we need to oftentimes get through difficult circumstances, missed expectations, failed goals. We need hope in the midst of frustration and difficulty. I think about engagement. I remember when my wife and I were engaged, right? You're having to go through all this wedding planning and you're juggling family expectations and your expectations and budgets and time and all this kind of stuff. And in the midst of all of that, what's so cool is that there's a ring on the girl's finger that points to what it's all for, right? She's got this engagement ring that's like, one day, one day the wedding will occur. One day the marriage will begin. One day this diamond will forever or something, right? That's, that's what we're looking to. And the girl has that. So even as she's playing, making phone calls and disappointing Aunt Carol about, I'm sorry, you can't bring all five of your dogs. You know, like that's, she can look at that ring and remember, this is where I'm headed. The guy has nothing, um, but he can just be tough. <laughs> but we're moving towards that inheritance. Paul says, you've been given this promise of inheritance from the Lord. And some of that renewal comes now, that we have the Spirit with us, but it's not yet fully fulfilled. But we look forward to that day. But what happens is so often in our sin and in our short-sightedness, the problems and the difficulties of now, gosh, they just have a way of overshadowing, of obscuring, of blurring our sight lines on the promises of tomorrow. That's what happens. It's not what should happen, but it, it does that the problems of today take priority. They overwhelm me as I'm trying to think or remember tomorrow's promise. And so for us as followers of Christ, the charge is simple. We need to commit ourselves to remember God's promise. So often commands in scripture are remember, remember, remember. Don't forget, remember. We are told to remember in scripture over and over and over and over again. Write this on your heart. Write this on your mind. Scratch this onto your doorpost. Remember what is true. 
Why? Because God knows that in this broken world, our, our eyes drift, our attention diminishes. And that's why even Peter, as he's writing, the apostle Peter, as he writes to early believers in the midst of suffering, one of the first things he tells them in his letter is he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for it's by his great mercy that he gave us new birth into a living hope, a living hope. A living hope that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that's into an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's why we sang about the living hope of Christ. Peter says, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trial, right? He's gonna talk a lot more about it over the course of his letter. But he says, in the midst of all that, what you've got to remember, what you've got to keep focused front and center is that you have a living hope and you have an inheritance that's not gonna perish it won't get defiled. It's not going to fade. It says that's what's been promised to you because of Jesus Christ's accomplished work. Not because you earned it, not because you deserved it, but because God has freely given it to you by grace, through faith in Christ. That's what we have to remember. We need to read these verses. We need to maybe memorize this passage. Say, God, you have given me an inheritance, unperishable, uh, imperishable, unfading. Because that's... That's the lifeline. That's, that's, the, that's the point on the horizon that God has given to us in the midst of suffering and struggle. So essentially at the end of this passage, when we get to these last few verses, before verse 25, Paul really just, he takes these ideas and he kind of wraps, sums it all up. Right, so he said, look, you have the spirit who has changed your identity from slaves to sons. He says, you've been given this promise of, of hope and glory, of inheritance that's going to so far outweigh the suffering of now. And in the same way, he says, so that's why in the midst of our internal groaning, he says, we can have enduring hope because of the redemption that's been promised, promised to us through Christ. This is where he says in 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Right? So again, he's getting to this sort of already not yet idea that you've been adopted, right? Your identity is set. You're not awaiting that identity shift. But what he's saying, what we're awaiting is even though our identity is set, our inheritance is still sort of, it's secured for us and it's laid up in heaven. So he says, you are adopted. You're brothers and sisters, right? He says, but we're still awaiting the full inheritance of this new position, the, new, the full inheritance of this identity. Namely, that's why he says, the redemption of our bodies, that final resurrection. When Jesus comes and brings all who belong to him into the glorious presence of our Father, to live in splendor and perfection forever and ever. He says, that's what we're waiting for. And so as we wait, what do we do? He says, verse 24, that we have this hope, right? It's in hope that we are saved. And now hope that is seen is not hope because who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with endurance. He says, so as we wait, the full fulfillment of this inheritance says, what do we do? He says, we wait eagerly and we wait with endurance. We have a positive perseverance in the midst of whatever life might throw at us. We endure hardship with this eternal hope. We endure with hope. 
and this isn't an ignorance of present circumstances. It's not an ignorance of what's happening now. It's not an ignorance of the present. It's a confidence in the future. So I still weep with those who weep, and I mourn with those who mourn. I still seek to live a life that, where I'm loving the Lord with all that I have, with all that I am. I'm, I'm seeking to live a life where I'm loving my neighbor as myself. I'm, very, I'm not disconnected from the day-to-day of my life. I'm, I'm not turning a blind eye. I'm not pretending like it doesn't matter. I'm still here. I'm present. But in that life, in that daily pursuit, that daily walk, I have with me this eternal hope that even in the suffering and even in the mourning and the, and, and the despair that maybe is shared by the world around me, I'm weeping with them, I'm mourning with them, but I don't mourn or weep as one who has no hope. It's not an ignorance of the present, but it's a confidence in the future. That's how I can eagerly await what the Lord is going to accomplish in my life, in this world, for all of creation. But what happens for us is that so often when we're in a season or a time of waiting, it creates space. And boy, there is something in us, broken by sin, that wants to fill that space with worry, with fear. And it's a struggle that humanity's had forever. When Adam and Eve first sinned against God, they knew something was wrong. They were aware of their sin immediately. And they're waiting until God shows up to talk to them about it. And what do they do? They hide. They run and they try to hide themselves in the garden. They cover themselves with some leaves. They're like, maybe he won't find us. I mean, he is God, but who knows? (laughs) Why? Because they were worried. They were fearful. They were waiting fearfully. And even for us, when we are awaiting the, the decision to be made, when we're waiting to see how this relationship pans out, we're waiting to see how the money shakes out at the end of the year, we're waiting to see where those grades all come in. When we're waiting, what can we do? We can fill that space with so much fear. That's why Jesus had to tell his followers, he says, I don't want you to wait and worry the way that the, those who don't know God do. He said, I don't want you to worry like them. Why? Because you have a father in heaven who sees you, who knows what you need before you even ask who's gonna give you what you need. It's not always what you want. It's not always maybe the timing that you would have preferred. It says, but God will provide what you need. So you don't need to worry like those who are lost. And so for us, when we are waiting, we don't have to wait with that worry. We don't have to wait with that anxiety to see how these things shake out. We can have a confidence. Again, it's not that we're ignorant about what's happening, but we can be confident in what is promised. I remember getting into my very first car wreck. I was a high schooler. It was late at night. I'd been making some poor decisions. I shouldn't have even been out and all that kind of stuff. 17 years old, first wreck. It wasn't crazy, but I was merging over and clipped someone. And so we'd like pulled over and we're like called the cops and we're waiting. I tried to talk to the college girl. She's freaked out because who's the 17 year old boy? And so she's just like keeps her window up and the eyes forward and is just waiting for the cops, which I totally respect. Like good for her. Not helpful, but like good for her. So I remember in that moment having this fear. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what's gonna, you know, the cops are coming. We're gonna have to sort this thing out. Um, first wreck, I didn't know what I was doing. I was 17. And, but yet in that moment, what I had in the back of my mind was I remembered my dad telling me, hey, when you get in trouble, call me. No matter what, you can call me. 
So even though it's like 2 a.m., I know my dad's like sleeping with his, you know, nightcap and his like enclosed curtained bed like Ebenezer Scrooge. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to have to call him. So I called my dad and he answered, hello, you know, and I'm like, hey, I got in this wreck. I don't know what I'm doing. He's like, I'll be right there. So even as I was waiting for everything to get resolved, and it did, it was fine. Even as I'm waiting for that to happen, I wasn't fearful. I wasn't anxious because I knew that my father was coming and that he had my back, that he had my best at heart. And eventually he showed up and it was, it was good. And we resolved things. Now, I also knew that consequences would come, uh, and they did, don't worry. Um, but I was able to recognize, hey, even in these mistakes that I make, even in this problem sphere that could be so worrisome, could be so fearful and anxious, I didn't have to fill that space with fear and worry. I didn't need to. And, and you know, I, I would continue to make mistakes. That's what high schoolers do, like they do. Like you probably did when you were in high school, but who knows, maybe you'll be a pastor one day. So, you know, it shakes out. But we have this hope, even in mistakes, even in failure, even in difficulty, not that we just have maybe great human fathers, which I hope you do, but we have a father in heaven who says, I'm coming for you. And so in that waiting, what it does, it doesn't create space just for worry and fear. It creates space for faith and witness. And in that waiting, as we await, we can share the hope that we have. It's why Peter tells those early believers suffering. He says, set Christ apart as Lord. Set him apart as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks about the hope you possess. This is what I love about the Christmas season. It's what I love about us celebrating Advent, starting Advent this morning, is that this is a time where we can proclaim to the world around us that this is what we're waiting for. We're waiting for the Lord who's faithful to fulfill his promises. We're waiting for the Savior who already came, who already lived, who already died, who already rose. We're waiting for him to come once again. And so the question that we should be asking ourselves as followers of Christ is how is it that we are waiting? Is our waiting serving as a witness to the world around us? And so as we prepare to talk about the candle as we prepare to close in some final worship, I want us to come to the Lord in prayer and just ask him, God, show me, where is it that my waiting can in fact be a witness? God doesn't waste this time of waiting in our lives. He doesn't. He can use every season, every stage, every circumstance to glorify himself, to proclaim his good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. But we need to be willing to ask the Lord, God, give me the eyes to see. God, give me the heart to be softened to the opportunities that come, to make a defense, to give the reason for my hope in Christ, in this season in particular. So let's ask the Lord for that clarity right now. God, we thank you that you have given us, Lord, this incredible promise of hope in Christ. And Lord, we just pray that you would give us wisdom to determine how is it that we can share the hope within us with the world around us. So if you would take this moment now and simply ask the Lord, God, where is it that I have an opportunity to endure eagerly? God, is it with roommates or family members, with friends, with coworkers? Just ask him for that direction. Say, God, show me, where is it that I can in fact be a light and a witness for your incredible gospel in this season?
Ask him for that clarity and then ask the Lord to empower you through his spirit to give you boldness to proclaim this good news, not just through your life, but even through your words. Ask him for opportunities to share out loud this hope you have in Christ. Ask him for that. Ask him for that right now. Lord, we are thankful for this morning, God, for the opportunity to, to come before you, Lord, to, to focus on your word, Lord, to celebrate what Christ has done. And Lord, we just pray that as we go into this season where, where people are getting caught up in a lot of different pursuits, God, people can be adopting a lot of different identities right now. Lord, we pray that we would hold fast to what you have told us, that we belong to you. God, that we are awaiting your reward. And that, God, in this season of waiting, we can endure with hope. Lord, we pray these things. We ask it all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.